Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Make a case for your faith. And so take your Bible. Let's get busy. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through verse 18. The Apostle Peter is writing most likely to the church in the area of Rome. They are in the process of experiencing increasing pressure and and opposition that will tragically come to an apex in about A.D. 64 when Nero will set fire to Rome and blame it on the Christians. And as a result of that, uh, intense persecution will ensue at at the city and amongst the Christian people at that time. And so you're writing to people, he's writing to people that are suffering or on the verge of suffering, and uh, so he's challenging them uh, that in the midst of a hostile uh, culture, in the midst of great opposition, he wants to challenge them how they themselves can be ready to make a case for their faith. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he writes these words, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a new book released on Christian apologetics with the provocative title, What's the Least I Can Believe and Still Be a Christian, a Guide to What Matters Most? And its author, a former Southern Baptist but now a United Methodist minister, says that the goal of his book is, and I quote, to confront fundamentalists with ten things Christians don't need to believe. And what are those ten items? Number one, God causes cancer, car wrecks, and other catastrophes. Number two, good Christians don't doubt. Number three, true Christians can't believe in evolution. Number four, women can't be preachers and must submit to men. Number five, God cares about saving souls, but not about saving trees. Number six, bad people will be left behind and then fry in hell. Number seven, Jews won't make it to heaven. Number eight, everything in the Bible should be taken literally. Number nine, God loves straight people, but not gay people. And number ten, it's okay for Christians to be judgmental and obnoxious. Now, the book is 168 pages. It also has a 66-page study guide for a seven-week small group study in a local church if you should so be inclined to take advantage of this particular resource. Further, in the press release related to the book, it invites those who might read the book to understand that the author does want us to take the Bible seriously, but not literally. 
So he lays out a kind of theological playing field in terms of these propositions. So the question is, how might we respond to this? You said, well, a moment ago you said that this is a book on apologetics, and why would you say that? Because that's what the author says it is. Uh, That's what he thinks that he is doing. He believes he is presenting a 21st century version of Christianity that can provide what he calls a compelling story to tell in the modern situation. Indeed, he is convinced that he is providing for persons, many of whom would be like you and like me, an alternative that will help seekers as well as be a comfort to believers who may find themselves questioning some of the assumptions that they grew up with. Now, how might we and how might I personally respond to a book like this? Well, number one, uh, I would say to you that he wrongly frames almost all of those questions. And uh, he tries to stack the deck, so to speak, so that it's obviously the, uh, clearly the direction that one should proceed and one should pursue. And so he kind of stacks the deck and tries to set the stage in advance. Secondly, I think if he would be honest, although I'm not sure he would be, he's given us an inaccurate Uh, and an untrue portrayal of biblical truth and Christianity. And therefore, actually, what he is giving us is not a defense of the faith, but something that distorts the faith and in actuality could be destructive and deadly to the faith. And yet I would say to you tonight, don't too quickly dismiss what this particular man has to say. The sad fact is, and hear me as I begin to move into this, Sometimes Christians are often their own worst enemy. Sometimes Christians are the greatest hindrance to people hearing well the gospel. The fact of the matter is, many times non-Christians never get to the gospel and be offended because they're first and foremost offended by you and by me. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ never even gets a hearing. Just a couple of years ago, the Barna Research Group did a uh, survey and they asked uh, people ages 16 to 20, and many of you in that age bracket are just a little bit older, to give their perception of evangelicals. And look at what they said. Non-Christians say that uh, evangelicals, 91% say they're anti-homosexual. 87% say they're judgmental. 85% they're hypocritical. 78% they're old-fashioned. 75% too involved in politics, 72% out of touch with reality, 70% insensitive to others, 68% boring, 64% not accepting of other faiths, and 61% confusing. That's not exactly a wonderful endorsement of those of us who claim to be devoted followers of Jesus, evangelicals in our theology, and committed to biblical truth. And so what I want to do tonight is go back to where we ought to start, the Bible. And allow the Word of God to give us an idea, a formula, a strategy or a game plan for how we can be good apologists who can indeed make a good case for our faith. And I believe the Apostle Peter does exactly that for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through verse 18. Indeed, the key verse is clearly found in verse 15 where he tells us you need to be able to make a defense. It is the Greek word apologia. We get our word apologetics from it. You need to make an apologetic to have an apologetic for the hope that is in you. In other words, Peter knew then as you and I must know today 
We must know both what we believe and why we believe if we're going to defend well the faith that we profess to believe. And furthermore, our assignment is not new. This assignment of defending the faith goes all the way back to the first century. Yes, the circumstances may be different, the context may be different, but the fact of the matter is, for 2,000 years, Christians have been defending the faith both against those outside the church and also defending the faith against those inside the church who would set forth false doctrine and do deadly, deadly damage to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So a book written to Christians undergoing persecution and suffering, Peter challenges them to be good apologists, and he gives them a great strategy, a threefold strategy for how they can do this. So let's jump into the text, number one. The Bible says, make a case for your faith, be ready for action. Peter, in the immediate context, going back, to verse 8 down through verse 12, has challenged us in a number of ways. Look at it there with me in verse 8. Finally, all of you, look at this. Number one, have unity of mind. Sympathy, number two. Brotherly love, number three. A tender heart, number four. And a humble mind, number five. He then moves into the next verse and says, Do not repay evil for evil, or as the NIV says, insult with insult but rather bless those who treat you badly and insult you. And you say, well, why should I do that? And he tells you, because you were called to this when you came to Jesus. And furthermore, not only did he call you to this, the Bible says he will bless you if this is the way that you respond to those who criticize you, who revile you, who come against you. He continues by telling us in verse 10 that we're to guard our tongue, which means sometimes keep that thing trapped behind your teeth. He also says we need to be of the habit of doing good. And it's interesting to note how many times throughout this text he is going to challenge us to do that which is good. Why do we need to be persistent in doing that which is good? He tells you because the Lord sees all of this and the Lord hears our prayers and he knows what is going on in our lives. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. And in contrast, the face of the Lord is set against those who do evil. In other words, who you are must precede what you say. You have to be rightly prepared spiritually in terms of a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, in terms of an absolute confidence in God's will. You've got to be the right person before you can begin to offer the right kind of verbal defense of the faith. So, he has challenged us, be ready for action. In what way? Three ways. Number one, be zealous for what is right. He, in verse 13, provides a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The word harm there has the idea of, of really harm you. Uh, to inflict permanent damage. And he, he says, well, who is going to try to really, truly harm you if you're zealous, if you're eager and passionate for doing what is good for the glory of God? And, and the implied answer is, well, no one. No, no one is going to treat you in this kind of a way. In fact, his argument is similar to what Paul does in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 when he says, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, of course, again, the answer 
is no one. But there's another way to look at this verse as well that may be really more in line with what Peter's trying to say, and that is this. He says, look, the normal course of living life, as you do so in a good, a positive, godly way, in the kind of way that is what? Having a unity of mind and is sympathetic and loving and tenderhearted and, and you've got a humble mind and you don't replay evil for evil and you don't revile when people revile you. Well, if this is the kind of life that you're living, well, my goodness, no one would necessarily want to come against you and, and harm you. So just first of all, be active in doing that which is right. And be zealous. I mean, be, be filled with zeal to do that which is right. So hold the truth with conviction, but also humility. Pursue what is right with, with firmness, but also with grace. And do what is right, but make sure you do it in the right way. So he says, first of all, as those who are new in Christ, be zealous for what is right. But secondly, realize you may suffer. He says there in the very next verse, but, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. In other words, Peter doesn't want us to understand what he just said in verse 13. The fact of the matter is, suffering for the gospel and the truth is always a possibility. And of course, in a secularized society or in a hostile environment like many of our missionaries experience today when they are serving in North Africa and the Middle East and some of them in uh, Southeast Asia, when they are in these contexts, they're not uh, secularized, but they're hostile to Christianity and hostile to the gospel, then he says, look, let's just be honest, you may suffer for righteousness' sake. In our culture, if you stand firm on biblical truth, if you are non-negotiable in those bedrock basics of the Christian faith, such as there's only one Savior and His name is Jesus, if you stand true on the bedrocks of the faith which says, apart from Jesus, you will spend a, a eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell, you will be accused, I suspect, of being a religious bigot, of being narrow-minded, of being the F word, a fundamentalist, it might even be in this context, but certainly in others, that you could lose your job. Maybe you wind up uh, being led by God to serve Him in a university setting, and it's possible that you might be denied a promotion because of your commitment to Christ. The fact of the matter is, if you become radical for Jesus, you may lose some friendships. Well, you may even have some broken family relationships as well. And ultimately, in certain contexts, you could suffer persecution and even die for the Lord Jesus. What does He tell us to do in light of all of this? He says, rejoice. Be glad, because you will be blessed. You see, suffering provides a glorious opportunity to learn what it really means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And I will tell you this, I do believe as we move forward into the 21st century, more and more of those who claim the name of Jesus will find themselves in a context where they do suffer. I even believe it will begin to happen more readily in our culture and in our context as well. And what will happen is it will be a dividing line. And there will be those who were glad to follow Christ when it was convenient and comfortable, but when it becomes costly, they will turn and walk away. But I would remind you, the Lord Jesus gives a wonderful word of encouragement in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Listen to what our Lord said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Two of my heroes in terms of my own academic preparation were New Testament scholars at Southwestern Seminary, Dr. Curtis Vaughn and Dr. Tommy Lee. Both are with the Lord today. And in commenting on these verses, they said it so well, I don't think I can improve on it. When believers are wholeheartedly devoted to the good, they are beyond the reach of harm, but they are not beyond the reach of suffering. You may be beyond the reach of ultimate harm because you are held and protected by the Lord Jesus, but that does not mean that you and I are beyond the realm of suffering. So be zealous for what is right. Realize you may suffer. And then number three, fear God and not man. He says there in the middle of verse 14, have no fear of them. Who's them? Those who may cause you to suffer for righteousness' sake. No, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You see? Now listen to me. Peter knew that we all fear something or someone. If you were to say to me tonight, well, no, Danny, I'm not afraid of anybody or anything, you're a liar. You're a liar. Because all of us fear something. All of us fear someone, and Peter's argument is make sure you fear the right one. In other words, Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way, don't give the opposition a second thought. Why? Because you fear God more than you fear man. In other words, you settle once and for all a basic bedrock fundamental, non-negotiable principle, and that is this, all that matters in my life is that I please God. I don't have to please my parents. I don't have to please my friends. Ultimately, when everything is said and done, I get up in the morning asking the question, how can I please God? And I go to bed at night asking the question, did I please God? And I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters, that simplifies life. It will simplify life, and it will indeed make you ready for action. Be zealous for what is right. Realize you may suffer. Fear God, not man. Now, number two, be prepared with a defense. Be, be ready for action. We are now ready to give a defense. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Jesus Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. A.W. Tozer said it so well, it is no sin to doubt some things, but it may be fatal to believe everything. And so with personal readiness and preparation, now I am prepared to give a faithful witness day in and day out. I will be ready to share with clarity and conviction the gospel of Jesus Christ and explain to people why I believe what I believe. Now, how are we to be prepared or made ready to give this defense. He makes two observations, both of which are found in verse 15. Number one, honor Christ as Lord in your heart. In other words, there is a right way and a wrong way to make a case for your faith. And I thought it would be instructive to see the different ways various translations capture what is being said here in the original Greek text. First of all, the ESV, in your hearts, 
honor Jesus, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy. The NIV, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. New American Standard, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Holman Christian Standard Bible, set apart the Messiah as the Lord in your hearts. And the paraphrase of the message, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ who is your Master. In other words, honoring Christ as Lord in your life is honoring Him as God and not someone else and not something else. It is almost as if uh, Peter is picking up on the concept at least of what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 when he says, you want to be ready to make a case for your faith? Make sure in everything and in all things, Jesus Christ is preeminent. So he says, honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why? Because first and foremost, that will help you slay the idols of the heart. Honor Christ as Lord in your hearts and you will not fear men, but rather you will hope in Him. And honor Christ as Lord in your hearts, and you will always be ready to make a case for your faith. It's very interesting. Peter actually is grounding this argument in one of the great Old Testament prophets, the prophet Isaiah. And in fact, he almost extracts from chapter 8, verse 12 and verse 13, the very verses that we read here. Listen to Isaiah 8, 13, and it's going to sound almost like 1 Peter 3. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. Now listen, He is the one you are to dread. I'm to uh, fear God. I'm to have a dread of God. Yes. You're to dread displeasing Him. You're to fear Him more than you fear any person, anything, or any man. You regard displeasing God as more fearful and more dreadful than anything in this life. You say, why do you think he says that? Because of this. To fear man is to both doubt and distrust Jesus. And nothing displeases Jesus more than unbelief. And so honoring Him as Lord and honoring Him as holy means you trust Him, you trust His promises with all of your heart, and you trust Him no matter what may come your way. The greatest preacher of the 1800s, no debate, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He pastored the great Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for many years, and he was very witty, very brilliant, and in this particular context, he said this, I think, fits so well. I quote him, God is too wise to err, too good to be unkind. Leave off doubting Him and begin to trust Him. For in so doing, thou wilt put a crown on His head. But in doubting Him, thou dost trample His crown beneath thy feet. And so he says, honor Christ as Lord in your heart. Secondly, be able to give a well-defended hope. Look at the text. He says making a case for your faith means always, I would mark that word if I were you, always being, I'd mark the next word, prepared to make a what? Defense, to give an apologetic to, I'd underline this one, anyone who asks you a, I'd underline this one, reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you why you have the hope that you have inside of you. 
Now, let me make a quick observation. You don't have to be a scholar or have a Ph.D. to give a defense of your faith. First Peter was written to very common people in the first century, many of whom, if not most of whom, were illiterate. These were not academicians. These were not scholars. These were not people that were college educated. My goodness, they were not even grammar school educated. And yet Peter is writing to them, telling them, you can indeed be equipped to be always ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, here's the million-dollar question. What is the key to my being able to have this kind of hope in Christ? What is the key that enables me to always be ready to provide an answer to anyone who asks me why I believe in what I believe and why I hope in what I hope in? And I think part of it is related to what we have in verse 18 where he says, here's the foundation. Christ also suffered once for all the righteous to the, for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So realizing and experiencing that Christ has brought me to God, there's an initial foundation for which I can then give a hope. I like what John Piper said in a message on this text, and it's a rather lengthy statement, but, but he said it so well, and it so blessed me to such an extent, I thought I would share it with you as well, so you'll see it on the screen, and I'll just read it with you together, and listen to how Dr. Piper says it. I just don't think I could get it any better. I quote, The reason we aren't more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and associates about the reality of our hope in Christ is that we don't feel very hopeful. And if our hearts are not full of hope in the promises of Christ, then here's what happens when an occasion arrives to make a case for our hope. We sense it as a duty to defend doctrine instead of a delight to tell somebody why we are so hopeful. I saw like I had never seen before that witnessing will always be a burdensome duty to defend a doctrine as long as Christianity means for us simply accepting certain doctrines as true and keeping a certain list of do's and don'ts. So many people in the church have simply inherited the motions of church life and outward morality and piety, but the heartfelt reality of Christ and joyful hope in His promises are foreign to their experience. Such people can always make a case for doctrine, but they cannot make a case for the hope within them because they don't feel any hope brimming up within their hearts. What this means then, just as the text says, is that the way to get ready to make a case for your hope is to get hopeful. That is what was so exciting. It simplified matters. Don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody else's questions. Apply yourself to selling the questions of your own heart. We have to find for ourselves reason enough to get over our fear of men and have a lively hope. If our own hope does not spring from something Christ did and said, then it is a mere sham to try to make a case for anyone else to hope in Christ. But if we search out the promises of Christ and meditate on His character and work for the sake of banishing our own fear and kindling our own hope, then this very act of reverencing Christ for ourselves will be the best preparation for making a case for our hope to others. So then, our primary activity in preparing to witness is to keep our own hearts happy in God. Morning by morning, we have to go to the Word, not to anxiously amass arguments for every possible rebuttal someone might have, no, We go to the Word because we are so desperately needy, our own hope 
wanes. We have fears that need to be overcome by the promises of God. We have doubts that need to be answered. The fight of faith then is waged on our knees with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer. And when we emerge from that encounter with God with a renewed and lively hope in His promises, we will be ready to make a case for our hope. For God only calls us to tell others the reasons which that very day are making us hopeful in Christ. And so I'd ask you tonight, what is it that makes you hope in Christ above else, above all else? Why, why do you love Him? And why do you treasure Him more than you love or treasure anything or anyone else? Is it the incomparable greatness of His person and His work on the cross that caused Charles Wesley to say, Amazing grace, how can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. Maybe your hope is grounded in the fact that you have a supreme confidence in the full authority and truthfulness, the, the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible, and you have confidence in the eyewitnesses who tell us the story of Jesus. Maybe the evidences for you are found in fulfilled prophecy, or maybe you're someone that has just latched on so powerfully to the reality and the truth of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Maybe for some of you... It is the fact that He took you where you were, dead in sin, and so radically altered you and transformed you. There can be no other explanation than the supernatural work and the supernatural act of God. Maybe for some of you, like Francis Schaeffer, you say, well, the Bible simply makes sense of the world in which we find ourselves. When you think of this world in the context of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and you look at the sinfulness of man and you see what God accomplished for us in Christ, it just makes sense of the world in which we live. I'll be honest with you. Hinduism does not make sense. Buddhism does not make sense. Islam does not make sense. And Judaism is incomplete in the argument it tries to make in terms of why the world is the way that it is. Only Christianity really makes sense of the world in which we find ourselves. Why can human beings be so creative, so gifted, do such in, incredible and, and marvelous and wonderful things on the one hand and then go to such depths of sin on the other. Dr. Moeller recently wrote an article about a family in Australia. They had been blessed with three sons. They wanted a little girl. They discovered through the great technology that we have today, this thing called a sonogram, that the mother was now pregnant with twins, twin boys, and because they wanted a little girl, they killed both of those little boys in the womb of their mother. Australia and really people around the world were outraged, but you know what? They didn't know why they were outraged. There was something inside that told them, this is not right, this is wrong, but having surrendered any source of authority grounded in Scripture, they had no good reason other than to say, well, I just don't feel like it was the right thing to do. If you're reduced to feeling what is the right and wrong thing to do, you're DOA in terms of making good, moral, ethical decisions, and our world is headed toward hell in a handbasket. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant 
Christian French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and philosopher. He wrote a series of sayings in a book called Pensees, collected after his death, and he made this very famous statement, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. Now let it sink in before you run too fast with it. The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. I agree with Peter Kraft who said a few statements have been more badly misunderstood than his. And so Peter Kraft in commenting on that statement says it this way and it's very helpful. This, the most famous of Pascal's sayings, is not sentimentalism or irrationalism. Pascal does not oppose the heart to reason or demean reason by exalting the heart. On the contrary, he says the heart has its reasons. And I love this statement. The heart does not only feel, it sees. The heart has an eye in it. In other words, it's one thing to know Jesus, for example, as an object of scholarly interest and popular perception, but it's another thing to know him as the lover of your soul. The greatest apologist of the previous century, I think most would agree, was C.S. Lewis. And in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis put it into very good context as to where we are tonight. I quote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other hand never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. And so Peter says, be ready for action. Peter says, be prepared with the defense. And finally, he says, be active in doing good. Verse 15, the latter part through verse 17. I often do marriage counseling, uh, premarital counseling in particular, and when I do premarital counseling, I will often make this statement to the couple that I am looking at. I will say, look, as, as best you can in your marriage, as best you can, strive to do the right thing in the right way and at the right time. I particularly try to say to guys, guys, you can say the right thing. You can even say it in the right way. But if it's not the right time for that girl of yours, it's just going to crash and burn. And so you've got to become sensitive to when is the right time to say the right thing and in the right way. Now you say, well, why do you say that? Well, here's why. Doing the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time leads to disaster. It's just wrong and stupid, okay? Let's just cut to the chase on that one. That's easy. But doing the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time is only going to lead to resistance. But doing the right thing in the right way at the right time will lead to success. And Peter understood that this is crucial in being a good apologist. So he gives us four things very quickly that helps us know what it means to be active in doing good. Number one, he says, be gracious 
in your attitude. Verse 15, we need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, when you tell someone why you love Jesus and worship Him as your God and King, do it with gentleness and respect. Don't do it with an overbearing personality. Don't do it with a superiority complex. Don't do it with arrogancy and rudeness that dishonors Christ and misrepresents the gospel and will torpedo your witness. Remind yourself daily, as I need to remind Danny Aiken daily, it is never right to be rude. It's never right to hate on other people. And even if you have the superior argument, and I think we do, to deliver it with a superiority complex is only going to destroy and make it effective that which you wish to say about Christ. Let's go back to just one statement as an example from my introduction. Why do so many believe that Christians think that God loves straight people, but He does not love gay people? Or I'll make it even more stark than that. God loves straight people, but He hates gay people. Now, why do they think that? Why do so many people think that? You say, well, it's not true. I don't care if it's true or not. There are a lot of people who think that. What have we done wittingly or unwittingly, knowingly or unknowingly, to give people that impression. My first year here in 2004, I was invited to be on a radio talk show, and the issue was homosexuality. And I was invited to be on the show with two lesbian women. One, just a, a lesbian lady that lives in the area as a, a business person, and the other was an ordained uh, minister of another denomination. And so we began the radio show, and of course I didn't get to speak at first. I was just sitting in my office on the phone doing email and everything else while these two ladies just, well, I mean, they went off. And they just talked about how uh, discriminating Christians are, uh, how rude uh, Christians are, and how many times they even fear for their own safety, not only among those out in the world, but even in the context of the Christian faith. And so finally, after they'd gone on for about 25, 30 minutes, uh, they said, well, Dr. Aiken, you're over there at Southeastern Seminary, uh, a good fundamentalist uh, seminary from what we understand. How, how would you respond to all of this? And so finally, given the chance to speak, I said, well, let me, let me say this first. I want to say to both of these ladies, I am so sorry for any time and every time someone who claims to follow Jesus has been ugly or rude, or unkind to you. I am sorry, and I would like to apologize for that. And immediately they, they came down a notch. And they said, well, that, that, that's, that's, that's kind of you. And I said, well, but I, I'm not finished. Can I say one other thing? Yes, please, jump in. Because now they thought, well, now he said that he's going to turn on them. And I said, well, let me, let me say one other thing. If I were in your presence and someone were to attack you for your homosexual behavior, which I do need to be clear, I do think is wrong. I believe the Bible calls it sinful. In fact, I want to be clear, I think the Bible calls any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman sinful. So I said, I believe that the Bible teaches that premarital sex is sinful. I believe the Bible teaches that extramarital sex is sinful. And I believe the Bible teaches unnatural sex like homosexuality and lesbianism 
are sinful too. And, and I would say I think heterosexuals are probably as guilty or far more guilty of sin, sexual, than are homosexuals, or at least equal to that. But having said that, my other statement is this. If I were in your presence, someone were to attack you, I give you my word, I would put my life on the line to protect you. Because that's what Jesus would do. Believe it or not, I've never been embodied to be a part of that radio show ever again. <laughs> because I did not perform the task that they anticipated that I would perform of being angry, hostile, ugly, condescending, demeaning. One of the reasons I am thrilled that, that Dr. Moeller is here tonight and I'm thrilled that God raised him up as he has, no one, I believe, has represented us in the media better than he over the last decade. I've watched him on Larry King and Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity where he's been in a form with those of a homosexual or lesbian uh, lifestyle and I've watched him stand for biblical truth but to do so, as this text says, with gentleness and respect. And so when you are giving a defense for the faith, you need to do it in the right way. Be gracious in your attitude. Secondly, Cultivate a clear conscience. He says in verse 16, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Having a good conscience just means you're free from guilt and you have nothing to hide. You live a life of transparency. You live a life of truthfulness. If your life were to be exposed for all the world to see, they would not be able to bring an accusation that would stick against your life. Number three, he says, be known for good behavior. For the first, second, third, fourth time, he returns to this theme of doing good. And so he says there in verse 16, when you are slandered, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better, verse 17, to suffer for doing good. I believe that Peter would say to us that being ready to give a defense of the faith is not a passive thing, but an active thing. It is a, a, what I call a controlled aggression where we are pursuing that which is good, knowing that Christ is in it, Christ is behind it, Christ is over it, and Christ is for it. Now, here's the problem. If you are quick-witted and if you have a sharp tongue, then it's really hard to hold back when people are chewing on you, especially if you know that you have the arsenal to clean their clock. It's just hard to, to be quiet. It's hard to, to pull back because you know you can lay them out and embarrass them in the argument. And so what would Peter tell us to do? I think Peter would say this, go back earlier into my book. And go back earlier into my book, into chapter 2, and just look at one example who might give you a better way. That better example is Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 19-24. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if... When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because, here it is, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If Jesus could control himself when being nailed to a cross, you and I can control ourselves when someone is simply saying something unkind to us or about us. Fourthly, trust in the will of God no matter what. He says in verse 17, for, if it is, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Romans 12, 2 is very helpful here. Romans 12, 2 reminds us that God's will is good, that God's will is acceptable, that God's will is perfect, but it also reminds us that God's will is not safe and God's will is not necessarily free from suffering. And so he wants us to understand that when we live a life committed to Christ in the context of a secular, hostile culture, we may indeed be uh, called upon to suffer. But suffering, as my friend Darren Patrick says, is one of God's most effective, secret, evangelistic weapons. We see this lived out over and over again in church history. Cornelius Tacitus lived from A.D. 55 to 120. He records for us in his annals what happened to the Christians when uh, Nero burned Rome and then began to persecute the Christians, falsely blaming them for something they did not do. Listen to how Tacitus put it. Covered with the skins of beasts, Christians were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired." These and millions of others suffered in a way that captured the eye of the people that watched, that captured the ears of the people who heard them trusting God, who captured the imaginations of the unbelieving world, who could not deny what they saw as these men and women died boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder, as the Bible says, they turned the world upside down. Let me close. In a song by Gary Driscoll and Carly Worley entitled Living Life Upside Down, they pen some very prophetic words, and I quote, Some say we've risen to a new age of truth. We have a program for saving the earth while unborn children are denied their right to birth. One baby's blessed, another one cursed. Well, you tell me. Have we made this world better or worse now that the life of a tree comes first? And you say we've risen to a new age of light. You're telling me what used to be wrong is now right, but I say, what if we're living life upside down? I indeed believe the world in which we live is an upside-down world, and therefore the necessity of being able to make well a case for your faith has never been greater. My hero in the ministry was a man named Adrian Rogers. He was three times the president of the Southern Baptist Convention Godliest man I ever met personally. Wonderful pastor that influenced thousands and thousands of people over his 40-plus uh, years of ministry. And Adrian Rogers said this, and I close. It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is not love and it is not friendship if we fail to declare the whole counsel of God. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It's impossible to find anyone in the Bible who was a power for God who did not have enemies and was not hated. It's better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with a multitude. It is better to ultimately succeed with the truth than to temporarily succeed 
with a lie. Peter has given us a clear challenge. Let's go and let's make indeed a faithful case for our faith. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the strategy that, that Peter gives us in how we can defend the faith well. Lord, we see very clearly that we have to be the right person before we can deliver the right message. And then, Lord, it is incumbent for us to know both what we believe and why we believe. And, Lord, it's even more incumbent that we daily renew that hope that we have in Christ. For when we are hoping in Christ, then there is joy and there is confidence and there is indeed, Lord, a, a motivation to share boldly what we have on the inside, praying that others might find that too. But, Lord, when we do speak for Jesus, help us to do so with gentleness and meekness. When we suffer, Lord Jesus, help us to remember you have not been caught by surprise. Indeed, being in the fiery furnace of suffering is a divine appointment ordained by you before the worlds were even spoken into existence. You knew that day would come. You purposefully put us there to be a shining light for Jesus in the midst of darkness and in the midst of suffering. So, Lord, we don't need to go looking for suffering, but we don't need to run from it. And when we find ourselves there, may we, like the apostles, rejoice and be glad that you have counted us worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.